reading today from the second chapter of Luke, beginning with the 41st verse, the story of the boy Jesus in the temple. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased his wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, friends, I've really had a lot of fun with this series that we've been doing. Uh, we've been talking about people who have stepped out in faith, people in the Bible who took extraordinary risks to do what God was calling them to do. That's not something that's easy to do or that comes naturally to us. We, we tend to prefer to do things that we know, that we understand, and we tend to be a little less likely to do the things uh, that maybe God is calling us to do that takes a great risk. My favorite stories, whether they're in the Bible or otherwise, are the stories of the underdog. Right? Who doesn't love a good underdog movie about, about some character who uh, does something really extraordinary, but the whole world told them that they would never succeed what they were trying to accomplish. And of course, you don't have to go to fiction or, or even the Bible. There's stories of, of these sort of things happening uh, in our world even today. J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, is one of the most successful authors in the history of the world. She's worth billions of dollars. She sold more books than almost anybody. And she was rejected by about a dozen publishers before she ever got her manuscripts published. And what's really amazing about her story is that she wrote Harry Potter sitting in coffee shops, living destitute and struggling even to afford food for her children. And so this woman who was destitute and poor uh, goes from publisher to publisher and is rejected again and again. And of course, we love those stories, don't we? We love those stories of someone who just didn't give up, tried harder, and succeeded. Bill Gates is a fun one. He's he's the wealthiest person in the world, depending on a given day, but generally he's the wealthiest person in the world. Uh, He was destined for success, but that wasn't enough. He actually dropped out of Harvard. Can you imagine being his parents? That he gets into one of the best schools in the world, and he drops out to go start a company, which turns out to be the most, one of the most successful companies in the history of the United States. Mark Zuckerberg, who founded Facebook, uh, actually did the same thing, but this past year he actually went back to college And uh, Bill Gates says that uh, he regrets not doing that um, because Mark Zuckerberg, the other Harvard dropout who became very successful, 
uh, now one-ups him because he actually has a college degree, unlike Bill Gates. But for every Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or J.K. Rowling, there are thousands and thousands of people who weren't successful. Your barista at the coffee shop probably also got rejected by 12 publishers. There's a, a good chance that, that you could meet a lot of folks who dropped out of college to pursue their dreams and weren't successful in that and either went back or found themselves uh, doing something that wasn't very fulfilling. Uh, the Cardinals have been kind of a source of, of not a whole lot of pride in the last couple of days, especially last night, for those of you who follow the Cardinals. Uh, but I, 2011 will forever be my very favorite season uh, in baseball. I don't think it could ever be topped because we came back, and if you don't follow baseball, just ignore me, I'll be back in a minute. But uh, that they came back from, from nowhere. I mean, they were losing every game and they were doing terribly. I remember the beginning of the season, um, the manager got angry with a reporter and kicked him out because he said, well, why are these Cardinals doing so poorly? And he said, you just watch. And, and things were successful, and the hero was David Fries, who's not with the Cardinals anymore, but he hit a home run in the, in the Game 6 of the World Series that allowed the Cardinals to continue to Game 7 and win the World Series. And what's so amazing about his story is that he also almost didn't happen. There was a really funny moment when he was interviewed. The the World Series MVP is always given a car by a local car dealership. And, and this time it was a Chevy Corvette from, I don't know, one of the big Chevy dealers in St. Louis. And they asked him, what kind of car do you drive right now? And he says, a 1991 Nissan. It was my dad's. <laughs> and then the stories came out that he was still living in a tiny one-bedroom apartment with a friend, uh, and they were still splitting the rent, even though he was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and was about to sign multi-million dollar contracts he was so quickly thrust into the world of Major League Baseball that he didn't even have time to spend any of that money. And what's really crazy about that is that prior to David Fries being a member of the St. Louis Cardinals, he was not uh, a college baseball player. He was not a, a minor leaguer or anything else like these others. He was a truck driver. He had gone to college and played baseball for college and been cut from his college team. And when that happened, he decided that he didn't have any reason to go to college. He liked driving a truck just fine, so that was going to be his career. And, of course, amazingly, he ended up back in Major League Baseball. But, again, there's a whole lot of people out there driving trucks, teaching classrooms, as accountants, being lawyers, or whatever else, who got cut from their teams, who never ended up becoming a great success in sports, and who just went on to live their lives as they had always planned it. That time that they played baseball or football was just a period of their life and not their whole life. As a culture, we tend to idolize success, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you're walking in the woods and you see a worn path, what does that mean? That means a whole lot of people walk that path before you and live to tell the tale, right? So usually it's a good idea to follow that path. So we kind of idolize success. We kind of say, well, if someone succeeded in something, I should follow them. I should do what they do. I should emulate them so that I succeed in something too. But the problem is, is that we have this false dichotomy. We believe that success is a good thing, and that's because it is a good thing. But then we tend to believe that failure is this awful, terrible thing that just cannot be tolerated. If someone fails, we tend to, as a society, reject them, and we tend to declare that they must just not have been good enough, or they must not have worked hard enough, or they must not have been smart enough. I think that's a bit of a problem. Because I think that what we see as the most successful people in our world, however you measure success, it's the people who were okay with failure. 
It's the people who are okay with not succeeding. Now, they just happened to succeed, but they were okay if they didn't. And that's an extraordinary virtue that we don't see a lot of, but we see it in the Scriptures. As a kid, one of my very favorite TV shows was one that was only recently canceled called Mythbusters. I'm sure most of you have seen that. The premise is two special effects engineers, David, uh, uh, Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman. And what their job was prior to this was basically making things blow up, right? They did special effects for movies. And, of course, doing special effects for movies, they heard all the time how something like this could never happen in real life. And most of the time, they were telling the truth. You know, most of the explosions are not big, giant fireballs, but they make big, giant fireballs because that looks better on TV, right? But they thought, what would it look like if we created a show where we actually tested these movie myths and it actually kind of grew from there to all sorts of other urban legends and the sort of things you see on TV or whatever. I remember one episode when I was a kid when, uh, when gas prices were sp- uh, skyrocketing. Uh, they were about a buck and a half more than they are right now on, on the national average in 2008. And so they did a whole episode on fuel economy, and they tested things like, does it save gas to lower the tailgate in your truck? Uh, it turns out it doesn't. It actually wastes gas to do that. And they tested all these things using the scientific method, and it was so fascinating. But what you might not know about uh, the Mythbusters is that Adam Savage, one of the hosts, had, had a motto. Everyone who worked for them had to know this motto. It was written on their walls. It was on their signs. It was put on the top of all of their scripts. And the motto was, failure is always an option which is a really radical way of thinking that failure is always an option, that it's okay if you try something that doesn't work because that means that you tried something. I think we could learn from that a little bit as Christians. We, we as Christians, become kind of afraid of risk. We become kind of afraid to, to try something new, to, to go what God's calling us to do, to, to give boldly, to share boldly, to love boldly. We don't like to go where we don't feel like we're welcome to share the gospel. We don't like to speak to those who are very different than us and we feel like we can't relate to them. What we're really afraid of is that we might fail, that we put all this effort into something and it not even work in the end. And the truth is it probably won't. And that's the reality that we're not okay with, that maybe we should be, that maybe we too should have a motto somewhere that failure is always an option. Because that was certainly the motto of some of our faith's greatest heroes. We've spent the last four weeks talking about them. Talking about people like Abraham, Peter, Jonah, who took extraordinary risks and were at some point, maybe not at first, but were eventually okay with failure. Now, in these stories, they were extraordinarily successful. Because that's what happens when you're in the Bible. You're in the Bible because you succeeded, right? You're in the Bible because you accomplished what it was you set out to accomplish. But that causes us to kind of fact that they were taking real risks. And by real risks, I mean there was a real chance that they could have failed. Jonah's story was the story of running away from God. And I think that Jonah kind of is one of the most unfairly treated people in the Old Testament because Jonah's response was completely rational. Now, I know it wasn't what God wanted him to do, and I know we should be obedient to God. I get that. But his response was completely rational. God says, go to this country that's at war with you, that wants to kill you, and then tell them that, that your God, not theirs, is going to destroy them if they don't turn away from their sin. That is not something a rational human being goes and does who values their life. But Jonah does it anyway, and of course, he's extraordinarily successful. But the story itself that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's a bit ironic because then Jonah rejects God. Jonah, who goes to Nineveh, 
to try to get these people to convert, then rejects God because you just cannot stomach the idea that God would love these people so much that he would forgive their generations of misdeeds. Peter, he was a bit of a failure story, right? He jumps out of the boat to follow Jesus, but then he sinks. And Jesus says, you have little faith, right? Imagine adding insult to injury. You're, 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 you're drowning, and, and Jesus says, you, you just don't have enough faith, right? I don't have enough dry land is the problem, Jesus. But Jesus says, I don't have enough faith. Abraham is another fascinating story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We have our, our wood up here, Abraham's altar. <clears throat> His story is a story of delayed success. Abraham did everything God asked him to do. Abraham was as faithful as anybody else in the Torah. Abraham did everything to a T that God asked him to do, even to the point of risking his own son's life. But the success didn't come until after Abraham. It wasn't even Abraham's son. It was Abraham's grandson who became Israel. It, it, it was a delayed success, which is perhaps part of the story we didn't spend enough time on or spend enough time talking about that Abraham would never actually get to experience the fruit of faithfulness. That's kind of another thing that we as, a Christ, as Christians today are a bit afraid of. We're afraid that we might fail. We'd rather stick on a path we know that might not lead us anywhere than a path where we have no idea where it goes. But we're also a little bit afraid that we're going to put a great deal of work and effort in and we're not even going to get to experience what God does with all of it. Well, this morning I want to about a young man who experienced extraordinary failure despite doing everything God asked him to do. He upset far more people than he pleased. He failed to accomplish one of the principal goals that he set out to accomplish. And at the time of his death, he died almost completely alone, rejected by those who followed him. It's 2017. It's 500 years since the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation occurred in, in October of 1517. And sometimes uh, we get our history a little mixed up, and we say that there was one church, and after Protestant Reformation there were more. The truth is there were already hundreds of churches. And this is important because Martin Luther did not go off and create a new church like others had done before him for centuries upon centuries. There was really never a time when there was really only one church. Even Paul identifies a couple of different groups of Christians, right? He identifies some of you follow this, some of you follow that. right? He identifies that Christians have always been diverse, but the Protestant Reformation was unique because it was really never supposed to happen. <clears throat> Martin Luther intended to reform the Catholic Church, intended to reform the church that he loved, to break them away from what he saw were departures from Scripture and from God's love. He failed in doing that, although many of his reforms exist today. They didn't in those days. And instead, his followers came later and started the Protestant churches. But he's actually not the focus of our story this morning. We're going to get to him. I just want to give you a little foreshadowing. It is the 500th year, and Reformation Sunday is going to come up. So we're going to get to Martin Luther. He's a very important character for us. But this morning, I want to talk about Jesus. I understand that failure and Jesus in the same sentence sounds a little strange, but hear me out. I, I think part of the problem that we have with failure is that we tend not to recognize where failure comes out of success. Jesus, of course, succeeded in his ultimate goal, but there were aspects that Jesus tried to accomplish. There were things that Jesus wanted to, to do. There were things that Jesus set out to do, goals that Jesus set, calls on Jesus' life that he felt from God that never came to fruition, that never happened. And again, I know that's kind of scary to hear, but maybe that's a little bit of the problem. If Jesus was okay 
with working hard and risking it all and even at times succeeding in where God was calling him to be, then maybe we could be okay with it too. So to understand what I'm talking about, let's go back to the beginning of Jesus' story. I've shared with you before that I think one of the most frustrating things about the New Testament is the lack of stories of Jesus' childhood. I would love to hear those stories. I would love to hear the stories of what it was like for Jesus before he was 30 years old and were reintroduced to him with John the Baptist when he's baptized. Because the the New Testament, uh, only a couple of the Gospels even give us a birth narrative at all. Only John talks about Jesus before he was born. And kind of skip ahead to this story, to Jesus and the temple. And they were there for Passover. Uh, the way that worked was uh, everyone gets together in Jerusalem temple for Passover, right? Everyone, uh, everyone gets together in the same place. You would have a faith gathering in your own community. You would have a place to worship, but that wasn't the temple. Only the temple sufficed for high holy days. And so everybody from all around would come to Jerusalem to the temple. Now, we Christians do this too. You may not realize this. But at Christmas and Easter, everyone goes to the holiest church in their community. The holiest church in their community is wherever grandma goes to church, right? We do. Christmas and Easter, we go to grandma's church. That's what you do if you're a good Christian, just like they did in Jerusalem. They went to Jerusalem. They went to the Passover at the holiest church. When you're a kid uh, in America, you go to grandma's church on Christmas Eve. That's just what you do. And you come on the 20th here at City Hall for this service, right? So that's what they're doing. They're going to Jerusalem. And, of course, traveling in those days was a little bit scary. Just like today, if you're traveling somewhere, you've got to take your resources with you. You've got to have food. You've got to have money. And that made it very attractive for bandits. So what they would do is they would get together in a big group, and they would all walk. And so that's what they did. And they get to, they get to Jerusalem. And then they all walk, and they leave. I think sometimes that uh, Mary and Joseph a bum rap here for leaving Jesus behind, like they're these terrible parents. But have you ever been around a big group of children? Okay? What do you do with a big group of children? Now, I know what they said they did, right? They, they walked in front to protect the children from danger as they walked in back. The reality was the most danger was behind them in that big group of kids, and they wanted away from that. I'll take a bandit over that, over that group of kids any day, right? And so they, they would put the children... Uh, seriously to protect them and to keep them safe, kind of at the middle of the crowd, and the children would all get together. And so Mary and Joseph see Jesus playing with these other kids, and, and they get ready to embark, and a day later, uh, they realize that their son is not in the group of kids back there. So they go to Jesus, they find him in the temple, and Mary gives the most mother response possible. We are reminded of Mary's humanity in this story. We are reminded that Mary is not this ethereal presence or this angel from above, but Mary is a human woman with human woman responses. Jesus, don't you realize what you did to me? Don't you realize how you made me look? Don't you realize how you made me feel? We have been searching for you. How could you? Now, Jesus does what teenagers do. Jesus rebels and gives her an answer. And he says, don't you know I'd be in my father's house? And then Mary gives a mom response. I don't care. You weren't with us. You weren't where you were supposed to be. And the scripture ends with this really beautiful phrase. It tells us that Jesus was obedient to his parents after that and that Jesus grew in wisdom and in years. This is important. This story is an incredible story that's so easy to gloss over to get to the gospel. Jesus is learning. Jesus is asking questions. Jesus is growing as a person of faith and growing as a human being. Jesus 
gives us an example by what it means to follow God, and part of following God is learning more about God. Part of following God is drawing closer to God. Jesus gives us that example. I love that the Scripture takes the time to remind us that Jesus grew. That Jesus wasn't born with all of his wisdom and compassion and power, but that Jesus grew. In this moment, Jesus grew in wisdom and years. He learned something from those rabbis. He learned something from that experience. And that helped him become everything that God called him to be. But it also points something else out. It points out Jesus' extraordinary love for the traditions and practices and faith of his people. Jesus had no desire to form a religion called Christianity. In fact, it wasn't even called Christianity for a couple of hundred years. Jesus had no desire to splinter off from this tradition that he loved, from these people that he loved, from these people who taught him, who raised him, who helped him grow in faith. Jesus came not as the Christian Messiah, but as the Jewish Messiah, and he desired his whole life to reform the people of Judea and their faith. As I said before, Jesus had a failure, and that was it. Jesus did not succeed in reforming these people. Jesus did not succeed in in ridding out the rigid legalism of the Pharisees, this political party who had decided that the role of a person of faith is to arbitrarily follow the law to a T, and if you failed, you were out. Talk about a culture of failure, right? Jesus sought to change that. He sought to change the way that people looked at the world. He didn't come to change the law. He came to change the way we view the law. He came to change the way we experience Not a law of punishment. <clears throat> and although this incredible new movement began as a result of it, Jesus' intention was that it would exist within it. Now, of course, Jesus succeeded in the ways that matter most. Jesus preached and shared the good news of God's love with everyone he met. And most importantly for us, Jesus' death on the cross provided a path for atonement that allows you and I to be in communion with the one who created us. But I think it's important to look at that story, to look at the story of Jesus learning in the temple, how much he loved his Jewish faith, and how much he desired to see that faith transformed, to see that faith returned to what God was calling it to do, and what it must have felt like to be on the cross not seeing that happen. Peter stepped out of the boat and he failed. Abraham was the story of insurmountable success, but he didn't get to experience it. It came after him. Jonah felt like a failure. He didn't see God's wrath in the way he hoped, and in his weakness, in his sin, <clears throat> he rejected the very God that he had warned Nineveh not to reject. Paul spent most of his life doing the exact opposite of what God wanted him to do, and it was only after he failed to see that he succeeded in understanding God's love. The last four weeks, we talked about these four people, these four people of extraordinary faith who stepped out and took huge risks that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't because the gospel of God, the gospel of love shared to all people is far too important to worry about when it gets a little bit scary. Failure is always an option. It doesn't mean that we don't make smart choices, but we have to be willing to fail. We have to be willing to take risks and to be bold, even if it won't succeed. After all, is it actually risk-taking if there's no chance that we'll fail? One of our five practices as a church is risk-taking mission and service. And what that means is that 
when we make decisions about how we're going to love our community by loving those in need, it's very tempting, very easy to not take any risks, to just say, I don't know that that'll work. That probably won't work. I don't know that that's going to do any good. But risk-taking mission and service says, if God is calling me to do it, then I'm going to do everything in my power to make it happen. Risk-taking mission and service doesn't always pan out. It doesn't always work. Because if it works 100% of the time, there was no risk involved at all. Failure is always an option. Another problem that I think is happening in Christianity, which is at the peak of a decline right now, is that we're on those beaten paths, the ones that our ancestors walked on successfully, the ones that our ancestors walked on to great success, to share the gospel with all corners of the world, but lead to where they once led. If you've ever walked through the woods, you might find an old path that's starting to get overgrown, and it leads to a foundation, right? It leads to something that used to be there, but it isn't there anymore. And so we walk down the path that we know as Christians. We walk down the path that we're comfortable with, but it no longer actually leads to where God And that's scary because the new path hasn't been cut yet. That's our job. And we have to walk through the thorns and the weeds in order to get to where it is that God is calling us to be, to reach the people of our community and of our world and to share with them the love of Jesus Christ that is shared with us first. But here's another reality. The punchline of the story of Jesus is resurrection. Jesus spent time in the temple learning and growing, and even though he was successful at part of what he set out to accomplish, he succeeded in a way none others could have ever succeeded in offering atonement through death that came ultimately through resurrection. Jesus Christ rising from the dead is proof that there is no failure that Jesus can't lift back up, that there are no ashes with which he can't draw us out of. No matter what we're willing to risk, no matter how hard we're willing to no matter how hard we might fall as a result of it, Jesus always has the power to back up, back to the drawing board to try something new. That power was demonstrated three days after the cross and Christ's inability even to stay dead. That's a pretty monumental failure. Dying, being killed, that's pretty monumental, but Jesus managed to turn a success out of that one. Monumental to upset somebody so much that they kill you, and then it's a pretty incredible to wake up three days later because even that can't stop God when God is calling us to do extraordinary things. Friends, let's follow in the example of Peter and Abraham, Jonah and Paul, and countless others who risked boldly for the gospel. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But as, but as people of the resurrection, we can always go back to the drawing board and try something new. That means that we speak to others that we might not normally associate with. We open our hearts and minds to ideas that we might have long rejected. And as much as I would love to point back at these earlier stories of success, the reality is some of this stuff is not going to work. And that's what's so incredible about it. That's what takes faith. Because we serve the risen Christ, one who has the power to take something that has failed and to bring it back from the ashes into new life. I think one of the great problems that we have with failure is that when we fail at something, we think that makes us a failure. I think it's a universal human experience. I I would imagine if every one of us could come up with a story of a time spectacular where everything we hoped for was shattered. And the worst part about that is that we begin to 
inwardly at ourselves and say, maybe I'm a failure. Maybe the problem is within me. Maybe I am just not good enough to have been successful in this situation. But as people created by God, as people who are part of God's creation, we are indeed good enough to fulfill the mission that God has called us to do. We have to separate failing at something from being a failure and be willing to say that as people who step out and as people who risk, as people who love God, that it's okay to rise up and try it again, no matter how scary the previous experience was. I believe it. I hope we believe it together. And I hope, most importantly, that we'll do it together, boldly. Amen.